1: And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater, Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. So glad to be here. Really glad that you're here as well. We're going to talk about the Trump protesters in Arizona. Trump is speaking right now uh, in Arizona. And there's been protesters who've been blocking the streets and the highways to get to wherever he is right now. Fountain Hills, Arizona. Um, Same thing with last week in Chicago. The American people don't like disruptive protesters. We're all good with freedom of speech. We're all good with freedom of assembly. But we don't like disruptive protesters. So people's sympathy is going to go to whatever those protesters are protesting against. That's just that's how it's going to be. So protests, you keep doing that, but you're just going to make people like Trump even more. We'll talk a little bit about that later. I want to start here, though. Ecclesiastes one nine: What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. We are certainly in interesting times with this election. And unique in different ways, but... There's nothing new under the sun. We think that this election is so bad, so angry. Saw, so I think Huffington Post the other day compared this election to 1968. Glenn Beck, Glenn the other day was comparing it to 1960. I saw some headline of upset. I want to go further back in time than that. I want to go back to a time when the sitting president... Or I should say the challenger was was running against a sitting president. And the sitting president called the challenger a murderer. Accused his wife of adultery and bigamy. And said that the challenger was a cannibal. That's right. Eats human beings would be the accusation from the sitting president to the challenger. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what the accusation is. The accusation was that the challenger... To the presidency, cha- uh, killed one thousand unarmed Indians, spent the night sleeping amongst their corpses, and ate a dozen of them for breakfast. That's all, <laughs> no big deal. Here's actually what uh, what one congressman said against uh, the challenger: uh, All generals in former times, having shown their feelings of humanity. Retired immediately at the end of the battle. And they went some 10 or 15 miles from the scene of blood and carnage as fast as their legs could carry them. But the day after this affair, the bloodthirsty Jackson began again to show his cannibal propensities by ordering his men to dress a dozen of these Indian bodies for breakfast, which he devoured. And not content with committing this shocking and unnatural outrage on humanity, he attempted to compel all the officers and soldiers under his command to make a breakfast of the same kind, alleging that it was better than camp beef. So not only did Andrew Jackson eat the Indians that he killed the next morning, but he tried to force all the men under him to become cannibals as well. These are the attacks on Andrew Jackson. Now, Andrew Jackson called the sitting president a pimp. And he claimed that John Quincy Adams sent American virgins to the Russian czar in exchange for political favors. Okay, so you you, you, got, you got these accusations. You got what the sitting president saying about the challenger challenger against the president. We're good. What's the worst that's come out of this campaign so far? Bad spray tan, little hands, I and mean, like, <laughs> it's. I don't know. I guess it's it's always been. like, And I, I guess I'm only having this reaction because I'm watching MSNBC from time to time and I just see Chris Matthews clutching his pearls like, oh, oh, the rhetoric, the rhetoric. It's like, come on. <laughs> Give me a break. Now, I want to stick on this election for a second because it's more than just the, the attacks back and forth. Andrew Saunders wrote a, uh, a great piece the other day about Andrew Jackson. If I can read the opening paragraph. He said, America has never seen a presidential candidate like this before. Detractors point to his lack of political experience, his poor grasp of policy, his alleged autocratic leanings, and his shady past. They believe that this man, without much of a political platform, but with interesting hair, has neither the qualifications nor the temperament to be president yet, in defiance of conventional wisdom, he is leading his three main rivals in the race for the White House. And the party bigwigs are at a loss how to respond. No, it's not Donald Trump. His name is Andrew Jackson. And the year is 1824. Here's the deal. I'll give you the short of of this election history. Fascinating election. 1824, you had John Quincy Adams, William Crawford, and Henry Clay. These were the three insiders. Quincy Adams was, of course, the son of John and Abigail Adams. And I want to talk about more of his resume coming up, but son of a president, not too dissimilar from Jeb, right? So you had the son of a president running. Crawford was a senator from Georgia. Henry Clay was a congressman from Kentucky, right? So two guys who in legislative positions, not too dissimilar from Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. So you got those three guys. Then you got the fourth guy, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was the outsider. He was a war hero. Battle of New Orleans was his big, big, uh, what made him, uh, so famous. Actually, he was the only person. Andrew Jackson was the only president to serve in the revolutionary war and the war of 1812 and his leadership on the battlefield. Unprecedented. He was in command of, uh, mostly completely inexperienced volunteers, free blacks, a bunch of backwood hicks from Kentucky and Tennessee. And he threw in a few pirates, just, for fun, right? So, so you get some rednecks, free blacks, and pirates, and with these th- groups of people, he was able to defeat the British army at the Battle of New Orleans, and they outnumbered the British outnumbered Andrew Jackson's team uh, three to one. Beat the British, came back an absolute hero. He had no political experience, but the people loved him. He was a celebrity. So he got the. The stage, I think the stage in 1824 is pretty similar to the stage today in the sense that you got three insiders. You got one guy who's never held political office, but he's a bit of a celebrity. Not done. The election, the general election. So, uh, you know, we're moving from primary to the general election. So the general election, after everyone voted, Andrew Jackson was in first place. He had 99 electoral college votes. Adams had 84 Crawford had 41, and Clay was in fourth place with 37, right? So Andrew Jackson was in first. John Quincy Adams was in second. This is after the American people voted. The thing is, though, he didn't have a majority. Andrew Jackson did not win a majority of the Electoral College votes, which means, according to the Constitution, the House of Representatives decides who the next president's going to be. That's in the Constitution. If there's no Electoral College majority, the House of Representatives decides. The Speaker of the House, the leader of the House, was Henry Clay, the candidate who was in fourth place. <laughs> All right? So that would be like today, if, uh, who's, the, who's the Speaker of the House right now? Uh, what's his name? Paul Ryan. That'd be like if Paul Ryan was a candidate, and he got fourth place, and he was, and he was the head of the House. So it goes to his House to decide who the next president's going to be. So you know what he did? He got everyone in the House- to throw their support behind second place, John Quincy Adams. And in exchange, John Quincy Adams named him secretary of state. So even though Andrew Jackson had the most electoral college votes, the house gave the presidency to Quincy Adams, the Jackson. And then in that very similar to kind of what they're thinking about today with the brokered convention, right? Trump will have the most probably will have the most going into it. But they're like, I don't know. (laughs) And they're going to figure out something else to maybe give it to someone else other than Trump. They did that in 1824, except it was for the presidency, not for the nomination. And the Jackson supporters flipped out. They called it the corrupt bargain. And the Jackson supporters rallied together like never before. And a bunch of other people who were on the fence before and even some other people's supporters ran to Jackson because they thought he got such a raw deal. So a lot of people were sympathetic to Jackson because it was like the presidency was snatched from him in this corrupt bargain. This group of people became known as the Democratic Party. So John Quincy Adams became president, but he only served one term because the entire time he couldn't get anything done because he was deemed illegitimate. He didn't deserve to win it in the first place. That was 1824, which brings us to 1828. Four years later, Quincy Adams running for a re-election, and that's when he was called a pimp, sending American virgins to the Russian czar. That's when Adams called Jackson a cannibal and a murderer. They distributed these things called coffin handbills. There were these flyers that uh, Quincy Adams' team would hand around. Coffin handbills. And on the top, it said, "'Accounts of some of the bloody deeds of General Jackson.'" And it had six coffins along the top. And these were the six men that Jackson executed during what was known as the Creek War of 1814. So here are the men, the Americans, that Jackson executed. And at the bottom of the flyer was a picture of Jackson stabbing a man in the streets in Nashville. <laughs> oh, the violent Andrew Jackson. There's nothing new under the sun. Jackson won that election. Crazy minute. You know, today we complain about the violence at rallies. I mean, I don't know. They, they called Jackson a murderer and they sent out flyers with coffins representing all the people he murdered. Now I got to take a break here, but there's one attack that I left out. There's one attack that John Adams, John Quincy Adams made on Andrew Jackson that backfired on him big time and this is probably the attack that that Adams made that gave Jackson the presidency I'll share that coming up next one 888 93 Slater Radio on Twitter going back in time here a little little history lesson why not Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network spread the word
1: Mike Slater
3: on the Blaze Radio Network You're listening
2: to Mike Slater. Uh, Watching the Yale basketball game during the break here. That's ugly. It was a good run, boys. (laughs) It was a good run. 19 to 36 right now. Duke is up. Well, what are you going to do? So we're talking about the election of 1824 and 1828. I think there's way too many parallels. Way too many. So first of all, the, the attacks back and forth. I think they make today's attacks look like kindergarten stuff. Um, the fact, like the, uh, the fact that John Quincy Adams didn't win the electoral college, but Andrew Jackson did, but they gave the presidency to Quincy Adams. That's fascinating. Just like what we're talking about today with the brokered convention. And there was one other, uh, oh yeah. The fact that, uh, like all the attacks against Andrew Jackson, are similar to, uh, to Trump today. Right. Violent, bad temperament, held no office, has no policy positions, don't know what he's about, has bad hair. It's very like crazy similarities here. It's wild. And the attacks again, they were brutal. Jackson said Adams was a pimp. He sent virgins to, uh, to Russia to make Russia happy. Adams said that Jackson was a cannibal and a murderer. They said he was an ill-mannered, barely civilized, backwood killer. You know, what they said they, uh, it's, it's, a, it's just like today, all the attacks on Jackson worked in his favor, right? All the attacks on Andrew Jackson in 1980 or uh, 18, uh, 28 in particular worked for him. Like they, they, oh, he's too rough around the edges. People liked that, right? Oh, look at all the duels. He fought, he killed people in duels. He, f- he stabbed people in the street. He executed people. The people loved it because at that time the American people thought that they were uh, becoming too European, too stiff, too elite, too um, pretentious. And they thought that Jackson was an authentic American. Think about this. The first presidents of the United States, you had uh, George Washington from Virginia, John Adams from Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, James Madison from Virginia, James Monroe from Virginia, then John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts. There was this Massachusetts and Virginia aristocracy that was controlling the White House and had been since the very beginning of it. And then Andrew Jackson comes in, this backwoods hick from Tennessee. The people loved it. The people craved it. And Adams would say, Jackson killed Indians. And the American people said, yeah, they're heathen savages, good. Adams said that Jackson executed American soldiers. And the Americans said, yeah, they were traitors. We support Jackson defeating the British any way that he knows how. Adams called Jackson backwoods. And the Americans thought that that was great. Sort of like uh, you know Trump today saying, I love the poorly educated. <laughs> Same idea. None of this is new. There's nothing new under the sun. But here's the attack that backfired. On Adams. John Quincy Adams called Andrew Jackson's wife. This is the election of 1828 now. So Quincy Adams has already served his first term. Running for re-election. Adams called Jackson's wife. The American Jezebel. So. Jezebel is the worst in the Bible. She's the worst woman in the Bible. The Bible. She's the epitome of evil. Um, she got her husband, who was the king, to stop worshiping God and instead worship the devil. And in the end, she was thrown out of a window and eaten by stray dogs. But anyway, like that's back in the day when people read the Bible, that is a oh, that's like the worst insult you could ever give someone. They called her American Jezebel. They called her a bigamist and an adulterer. Why? Here's why it backfired. Andrew Jackson's wife divorced her husband to marry Jackson. Okay, so she divorced her husband and then married Andrew Jackson a year later. A year or two after that, they found out that her divorce was never officially finalized. Right? It was never legally finalized. So technically, she was married to two people at once. Right, She was still married to her to her ex-husband and to Andrew Jackson because her divorce wasn't legally finalized. So, Adam's team jumped on that and called her an, ad- an adulterer. And it backfired big time because the people said, come on, give me a, a, come on, Jackson, that's low blow. Low blow, common sense says that she divorced her ex-husband to marry Jack. She's not really a bigamist. And it was really the first time in, in, in the American history, in this campaigns, so when the American people said, whoa, 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 <laughs> you went too far attacking the family. All right? They said, yeah, Jackson may be a backwoods hick, but he was all, he's also a war hero. He's also a general, so slow your roll, Adams. So this is all going down just like today, right? The more that the elite would bring up their problems with Jackson, the more people would love him, just like Trump. So, Quincy, so um, Andrew Jackson uh, embraced this all, right? He uh, distributed, as for his campaign, he distributed flasks and snuff boxes for tobacco and match boxes and medallions, right? And it all represented his, his backwoods Tennessee heritage, alcohol, tobacco, war, and really embraced that compared to Sam, uh, uh, John Quincy Adams' elitism. The same thing Trump is doing right now, but again, the greatest comparison, and we'll see if this unfolds the exact same way. But after the elect, the uh, on voting day, after the electoral college, Quincy Adams was in second, but he ended up winning through a corrupt bargain. And we'll see if uh, this, the the uh, establishment wants to do the same thing with Trump here and what the result of that is going to be. Again, Andrew Jackson at the end of 1824 uh, formed the Democratic Party. So who knows what's going to come out of this? But we're in the middle of it. People will look back at this and be like, oh, the election of 2016. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I was there. one 888 93 Slater Radio on Twitter. What you think about those, uh, the comparison. There's nothing new under the sun. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Is about to
1: Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Someone got new intro music. That's very exciting. Uh, Yale's uh, down twenty-five to forty-eight. That is—that's uh, a lot of points. And I would do the old. It's all right. It's okay. You'll be working for us someday. Cheer, but it's against Duke, so they're pretty smart too. Uh, thought of an analogy the other day, and I want to—I uh, want to present it here and see how you can add to it because I know Glenn a while back did a lot of stuff with. Thomas Edison, so maybe you can, you can help give me some insight to make this analogy even more clear, but um, I believe Donald Trump is Thomas Edison, and Ted Cruz is Nikola Tesla, right? Trump is Edison, Cruz is Tesla, so I want to compare Edison and Tesla here for a minute, so Tesla was arguably even more brilliant than Thomas Edison, but Thomas Edison was much more well-known. They're both smart, don't get me wrong. Tesla was probably smarter. Edison, though, was a better showman. He knew the best way to raise money, Edison did, the best way to raise money was to always be in the spotlight, no matter what. He had to dominate the spotlight. We use that spotlight, a a metaphor, All the time because, you know, on stage you got a spotlight, it follows the actor. There's only room for one person in the spotlight. You can only fit one. Edison knew that. Trump knows that. So Edison, wanting to raise money, would have these massive displays where he would show off all the things that he could do with electricity. And now at the time that's, you know, dazzling in and of itself, but it would get old after a while. So to get people excited, he would talk about future inventions that he was working on. And he'd, he'd say these future inventions, and people were amazed. And then after a while, they're like, okay, what else you got? So Edison would make stuff up, and he said he's in, he's working now on a robot that can take photographs of your thoughts. And the people said, oh, that's amazing. Here's all my money. <laughs> Who ro- Photographs of my thoughts. Wow. Now, Thomas Edison knew that this was crazy. He knew there was no such thing. He wasn't working on that. That's ridiculous. But he would say whatever it took to keep the spotlight on him. To the point where Edison found out that he was going to get the Nobel Prize in physics. Pretty good, right? He's pretty fired up. Then he found out that he was going to share the prize with Nikola Tesla, his rival. They were both going to get the Nobel Prize in physics that year. Edison turned it down. Turned it down and then somehow convinced the, the committee to not give it to Tesla either. So Edison would rather receive no award. No Nobel Prize. than to have to share the spotlight with his rival. Think about the debate that was supposed to happen uh, Monday. Trump's not going to show up. Why would he? Why would he want the spotlight on three people? Or two, really? Why would he want to do that? For his, I mean, listen, I, I, I think he should. Do, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying from his perspective, why would he want to? Why would he go to the debate? From his perspective, why would he? Instead, he's going to go somewhere where he gets the spotlight. He gets all the attention. And he doesn't have to worry about anyone else. That's the same thing uh, Edison would do. The spotlight had to always be on him. I don't know what it is about us, but human nature, we we crave larger than life figures. I don't know why. But we love it. Always have. Nothing new. <laughs> it's been going forever like that. We love large and large. We love train wrecks, not literal train wrecks, people who are train wrecks. We love it. This is what drives our celebrity culture. And it's, again, it's nothing new. What may be new and really not even, because this has been forever too, but, but what we think is new is the combining of entertainment and politics into one. But again, that's not even new either. I want to talk a little later about, um, the media's fascination with Trump and why they are. But one last story on, on, on getting the attention. So Louis the 14th head of uh, France back in the day, he had a court, right? He was the King. So he had a court of people to entertain him and he had the best writers and the best artists and then the most beautiful women. But the most talked about person in his court was uh, a dwarf, I don't even know, I don't think we're allowed to use that word. A little person. But he wasn't just a little person. He was a horrible person, right? He was was awful. He would sleep with the king's mistresses. He would insult everyone else in the court. Everyone, except for the king. He was rowdy and obnoxious and drunk and terrible and awful, and everyone hated him, but they couldn't bear to see him go. They hated him, but they were fascinated by him. Trump's not the first person to play this role. And my analogy here, the media is Louis XIV's court. right? There's plenty of other players that are far more talented, far more interesting, far more exceptional, have actual things to say. But then there's one guy that everyone loves to hate, and he gets the spotlight. That's Trump. And you can't lose that spotlight. Once you have it, you can't lose it. Now, last, that's the, last week, I argued that Trump's going to start to soften his edges and he's going to increase his prestige. But he's not going to lose the spotlight. He'll do anything to keep the spotlight. And that's why the protesters are doing him such favors, because it keeps the spotlight on him without him actually having to do anything. I think last week we shared some stories of uh, P.T. Barnum. All right, Barnum and Bailey Circus. and We talked about the things he did to gain attention. Greatest showman of the 19th century, P.T. Barnum. And he ended his career as a politician, not surprisingly. But P.T. Barnum knew not only the way to get the spotlight, but he knew the ways to keep the spotlight. I'll share one quick story on this. So he had a, um, you know, when you go to the fair, they still have this where they'll have like, you know, the the bearded lady and the world's biggest rat. And you know, I mean, stuff like that oddities or whatever. Half snake, half man, right? So he would have these oddities. And, and one of the, the people that he would tour with was a woman named, or he would name her, Joyce Heth. And he claimed, P.T. Barnum claimed, that Joyce was 161 years old and she was a slave to George Washington. She was one of George Washington's slaves. 161 years old. Now, that's absurd. But people would pay to see the woman. People pay to see the 161-year-old woman, and then after a couple months, the crowds would dwindle. So Barnum, to get the spotlight back, he wrote a letter to the paper. Under a different name, right? He pretended he was someone else. And he was outraged. He wrote a letter that said, this P.T. Barnum is a fraud. Because Joyce Heth is a fraud. She's not 161 years old. P.T. Barnum is a liar. This Joyce Heth that he says is the former slave of George Washington, she's not the former slave. She's not even a human. She's a robot. She's a robot made of whalebone and rubber. Sincerely, Chris Smith. What did that do? Two things. First, people who haven't seen her yet wanted to see if that was true. So they paid a ticket to go see the 161-year-old woman, or maybe it was a robot. I don't know. We'll go see. And then the people who already did see her said, oh, I don't think she was a robot. I'm going to go back and look again. So the people who already bought a ticket went and bought another ticket to go see it again. He would do anything to keep the spotlight. Edison did anything to keep the spotlight from going to Tesla. That dwarf in Louis XIV's court was a horrible person, but they couldn't keep his eyes off him. Kept things exciting add Trump to the list these are all showmen P.T. Barnum Thomas Edison the dwarf Trump they're showmen compared to Ted Cruz who in any other year really any other year would be the nominee and who in a one-on-one debate I think would do incredibly well against Donald Trump but Kasich is in the way I was in the race for no reason, but I don't want to go there now. Cruz has got to be thinking, Saints alive, Kasich, just get out of the way. Get out of the way so I can have a chance here. They're trying. They're trying to get attention, but that spotlight can only fit one person. Trump's not the first person to recognize the importance of that. Remember, there's nothing new under the sun. one 888 900 3393 Mike Slater Show The Blaze Radio Network Spread the word
3: This is Mike Slater On the Blaze Radio Network Mike Slater
2: Slater presenters. Uh, this this show. I've never seen it. It's called The Circus. It's, a, it's on Showtime. I don't have Showtime. So I've never seen it. Uh, but a couple of my friends of mine have talked about it. And uh, my understanding is it's, it's a documentary of the campaigns, like this campaign. And I guess they have a really quick turnaround. So, you know, it's like what's happening right now and it's very unfiltered and raw and all that. I want to play this clip, the scene of it, though. It's a, it's a three-minute clip. We, we shortened it down a little bit. This is... The establishment, right? I mean, you hear about the establishment, but like, what is that? Like, what does it look like? Uh, you know, and Salcedo, and just before we got on here, in the last show, he played a clip. I'm sure you heard of, it, of the uh, RNC rules committee chairman guy who's on CNBC. And he said, you know, the media has created this perception that it's the voters who decide the nominee, not the party. And the anchor woman said, so why do we even vote then? And the guy said, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm like, what? And then the RNC top lawyer, um, Ben Ginsburg, he said, "Yeah, Rule Forty B. It's it's a temporary rule. We're going to make new rules right before the convention. It's a temporary rule, like Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not it's not so much a rule, more of a guideline, that right? But we're just going to change them all up whenever we want anyway, right? So we've been hearing about this. We've been hearing about the establishment, but what is it? I want to play this video here now. You can't see it, but it's exactly what you would think the establishment would look like, right? This is MSNBC's Mark Halperin at a fancy dinner." with a major GOP fundraiser, a former congressman, a George W. Bush White House advisor, a Reagan and H.W. White House advisor, and a McCain super PAC guy. And here they are, around this fancy dinner table, talking about Trump, enjoy.
4: Everybody around this table that I know, we've been in every presidential campaign probably since 1980 in various degrees. And in Trump's problem, yeah, you, he doesn't have a comp you don't know what his compass is. And how problematic is that for the future of the party? I think before it's all over, it's going to be hugely problematic. I talk to people all the time because I'm sure everybody around the table doesn't. They They say, Why don't you, Republicans, do something about this guy? I'm sorry, this is not the Soviet Union. We can't call a meeting and decide Trump is out. And we hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Benign dictatorship. Who's for it? Trump is doing well for one reason. He understands. the the, the climate and the culture of America today better than anybody this day before.
0: How do you feel about the fact that the Republican nominee may be someone that none of you know? Shell shocked, bewildered. Republicans are hierarchical, respectful of authority. We fall in line. And Trump has interrupted that cycle. Donald Trump, nobody thought of him as any kind of political leader until six months ago. He's not articulate, he's not poised, he's not informed. All he has going for him is a lot of votes. Why hasn't any of that hit home?
1: Here we are. Here we are.
2: Why hasn't it hit home for you?
0: (laughs) I think everyone's kind of buying into this he's inevitable and that he can't be stopped. I believe he can be stopped. What are you doing or plan to do to stop him?
4: (laughs) He's working working with Cade. Exactly.
0: What are you doing? We're, We're working on it effective in Iowa, and that was enough to knock him in a second.
4: Hey, so, none of us know who you're um, about. Our principal. Katie pack. Packer.
0: Katie Packer. Like pack. What's your role um, in that pack? Pulling, which is now public record. Because <laughs> <laughs> you care more about it being president.
4: I'm scared of him as president. I think he's an authoritarian president. figure. To deport 12 million people, build a wall on the Mexican border, and impose a religious test on people coming into this country is so violative. so violent of everything I believe about America and the Republican Party. I travel around the world a
0: lot, and Trump is a laughingstock. The world, whatever that is, is at peace with Hillary Clinton.
4: I've never voted for a Democrat, or any, I've never voted for anybody other than a Republican for the President of the United States. This
2: would not be an easy thing for me. The, uh, one of them was a uh, Reagan White House advisor. He's the one who said, Republicans are hierarchical. We respect authority. We fall in line. And Trump has interrupted that cycle. Trump needs to play that ad on TV all day long. When are these people going to understand? The more you say stuff like that, the more it ticks people off and the more they run to Donald Trump. Get it straight. And you know the Republican leadership and establishment, they have themselves to blame for this. All those promises, right? All these promises for all these years now. They say they need to win the next election. Give us the majority in the next election. Increase our majority in the next election. And we did that. And they still can't get anything done. They still can't stop anything. They still can't turn this country around to make us more free. They have themselves to blame. They caused Trump. They caused Donald Trump. The Republican establishment caused him. They created him. They created the environment that that resulted in him rising up. There's no doubt in my mind. Now Obama had something to do with it. There's a bunch of things that did. And the Republican establishment is, is most to blame and here they are complaining about him. Look in the mirror, guys. one 933 93 Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to come back. Um, people ask me all the time who they should vote for. I'll never tell you who to vote for. But I'll give you one piece of advice and I I want to know what you think about it. We'll do that next. Mike Slater show. Spread the word.
1: You are listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater who said America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Appreciate you giving us some of your time. Yale not doing so well against Duke right now. <laughs> Duke's like doubling their score. Oh, well, it was fun, boys. Fun while it lasted. The uh, starting forward... For Yale, Sherrod, he took last year off from school. I think he's a senior now. Yeah, he's a senior. He took last year off. Uh, and you're thinking, why? Why did he take Why did he take a year off? I mean, that's, Yale had a great year last year. Why would you take, or two years ago, they had a great year. Why would they take last year off? Maybe uh, maybe he went to, he wanted to do some extra training. Want to take a year off, do some hardcore basketball training. Maybe he would go play in Europe, something like that. Wanted to really uh, improve on his game to get ready for this year. Nope. Uh, Brandon Sherrath, the starting forward for Yale, joined the Whiffen Poofs. <clears throat> the Whiffen Poofs are an acapella group. Yale has about 40 acapella groups and then... For the men, they take the best sixteen their senior year, and they have a group called the Whip and Poofs. It's been around for like nineteen oh nine or something like that, and they tour the world for a year. They take school, they go off, they leave school, and they tour for a year. So the starting for the basketball team last year took off because he was in an a cappella group. Okay, so there, there's our basketball team. That's uh, sounds about right. Hence them losing by you know forty points right now. Um, I want to play a uh, a clip here from one of my favorite miniseries. But let me back it up. So people ask me all the time who they should vote for. Uh, I will never tell you. <laughs> it's, not, it's not my job. I, I feel uncomfortable doing that. Not in a primary. Not in a, I mean, I don't know. Other hosts have different opinions on this. That's totally fine. But I think you're smart enough to make up your own mind. But if I were to answer that question, Who should I vote for? The best answer I can give. Now, let me make a disclaimer here first. This is for someone who has seriously thought about the issues. And looked into the candidates and has spent some time on this and just can't decide in the, you know what I mean? Like, but, but they really put some effort in. I'm, this is not my advice to someone who has never paid attention to politics and is just taking a random shot in the dark. This is advice for the person who has who genuinely tried to come to an answer. And they just can't. And my advice to that person, are you with me on the type of person I'm talking to? My advice to that person, trust your gut. Just trust your gut. This is the story I want to share. Uh, Band of Brothers, World War II. There's an a easy company, elite company of paratroopers. These men were the best of the best. And Dick Winters was the, their, their commander, Major, Major Dick Winters. One of the most honorable men to ever wear the uniform. If you haven't seen Band of Brothers, it's a, um, a HBO miniseries from, oh, geez, I don't even know, like 10 years ago probably. Tom Hanks was the director. It's fantastic. So they just spent, they just came off a month in uh, Baston, Battle of the Bulge. Freezing cold, miserable in every way, just awful. Band of brothers were then sent to Hagenaw. So Hagenau is a tiny little city, 20,000 people uh, on a river. And the town is within France, but the Germans captured it really early uh, and they held it until 1945 and the Americans took it back. So the Americans are on one side of the river in Hagenau. And the Germans, the Nazis, are on the other side. It's about a football field's width across the river. Now, it's 1945. There's not much action going on at this time. Both sides knew that the war was winding down. And this is important because there was a cautious hope amongst these band of brothers. A glimmer of hope that they might be able to make it home alive. Now, the previous couple years, I mean, it was, they didn't think they were going to live, right? So they're willing to, I don't want to say willing to give it their all. That's, that's not what I mean. But it, it, there was just a, more of a drive because they thought they were going to die. But now there's a glimmer of hope that they might live. So they're a little more cautious. They, they really just didn't want to do anything stupid. They wanted to make it home and they thought that they could. So they're at this, this city, this little tiny town, basically, Hagenau. Colonel Sink ordered the men to take a small patrol boat across the river and capture a German soldier for interrogation. They had to capture him alive. They're like, okay. Uh, so they did. 20 men paddled across the river in the middle of the night. I think it was 1 a.m. Somehow made it through a well-defended position in the pitch black, captured two Nazi soldiers and brought them back without anyone noticing. Now I say without anyone noticing, that's not exactly true. Um, There was one American who died, Private Eugene Jackson. He was 19 years old and a grenade exploded in his face. Blood everywhere, burning hot metal lodged in his skull. He was screaming, screaming for the men to kill him he couldn't take the pain anymore and they're on the the patrol boat back and he's begging these guys to kill him. He died before they made it back across the river. Now they had these two Nazis for questioning. So mission successful, but it weighed on these men because they lost one of their brothers. And I mean, they were used to that, but they're looking at, like, for what? In this case, like, why? Why, why, did we, why did Jackson have to die? This is a pretty useless thing. Like, what are we going to learn from these two Nazis? The war is almost over anyway. Why are we going to capture these two low-level guys? They, they don't have, they're not going to have any information to share. So wh- what did we just do this for? And it really weighed on them. And morale was super low. The next day, orders came from Colonel Sink. To go back across the river and capture another German soldier. Why? Why? Eugene already died for what? We got to do this again? Now to make matters worse, that night it was freezing cold and the river uh, had some ice in it now. So the Nazis are going to hear the Americans coming across. They were now more on the lookout for it. This was a suicide mission and for nothing. But orders are orders. So Captain Dick Winters, he was a captain at the time. He was in charge of... So Colonel Sink made the orders, and then Dick Winters was the guy in charge of you know, making it happen. I want to play a scene here from that HBO show, Band of Brothers. They are in a dark, dank basement in an abandoned house in Hagenau. And the captain walks in. There's maybe 10 guys... Around this small table, and this is the scene when dick winters this is when he has to when he tells the guys that you gotta go back right we we did the mission yesterday, Jackson's dead, but you got two Germans now Colonel Sink says we gotta go back again. Here's that moment right when Dick Winters enters the room
1: yeah.
4: Martin sir. Is everybody Grant. Sir You men did an excellent job last night I'm, uh, I'm proud I'm proud I just saw Colonel Sink He's proud too In fact, he's so proud He wants you to do another patrol across the river tonight Any moment now the outpost we hit last night will go up in flames, Martin. Yes, sir. It means we'd have to venture farther into town this time. Captain Spears, you have the map, please? Yeah, Sergeant Grant. We have enemy movement here and here, which means this is our new house target here. We recovered all the boats, so we'll be setting off from the same place we did last night. We're not changing the plan any, sir. No Plan's the same uh, It'll be 0, 200 hours instead of 0, 100 Is that clear? Yes, yes sir. sir
2: Here it comes, check this out okay.
4: Good, because uh, I want you all to get a full night's sleep tonight Which means in the morning You will report to me that you made it across the river Into German lines we're unable to secure any live prisoners. Understand? Yes sir. Yes, sir. yes, sir. Good. Look sharp for tomorrow. Moving off the line.
2: Now. Anyone in the military knows the punishment you get for disobeying orders, for willfully disobeying orders. That's one of the greatest leaders in World War II directly disobeying an order from a colonel. He wrote a bogus report and presented it to the colonel. Captain Dick Winters looked around the room at his men and trusted his gun. I hope the relevance of this story makes sense. First of all, I'm not suggesting that it's good to disobey orders. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting to make wild, rash, immature decisions in life, in the military, or on who to vote for. Don't make a rash decision. Don't make a wild decision. Don't make an ignorant decision. But if you've asked the right questions, if you've weighed the options, if you've really given it some thought, and and you just can't decide what to do, my advice is in the end, trust your gut. That's probably right. one 900 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
1: Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On The Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Alright, don't look now, but Yale is down by seven. <laughs> they went on a fifteen and two run to come back. Oh, that was exciting. All right, so there's ten minutes left. Yale versus Duke. All right, just gonna watch this one drive here. All right, no good. All right, focus, focus, Come on, no one cares about the Yale basketball game. Come on. Um, heard a great line the other day from from a caller, and he said, "Slater, you know what's interesting about." Uh, celebrities is we think we know them. We think we know them, and that's true. <laughs> is that interesting? And and I was asking myself the other day, about a week or so ago, how is Trump going to change his image? Right? How is he going to go from brute, trash talking, whatever, to prestigious statesman? And he will. That's he's he's gonna he's gonna be able to change his image, and I'm saying i was thinking how is he able to do it? And he will. Just to anyone who thinks he won't, just wait, give it time. He will. How will he be able to redefine himself? And someone like Marco Rubio can't. And let me say this quick disclaimer here: put aside all your put aside politics here for a second. I'm just looking at the optics and dissecting things. So put away your your hatred for either Trump or Rubio or whatever. Just as we analyze this. How can Trump redefine himself? But Rubio never could. No one will ever forget what Marco Rubio did with the Gang of Eight. No one will ever forget that that'll always be with him, no matter what. I saw an amazing picture of of Rubio giving a speech about the Gang of Eight immigration bill. This is like the presentation back, I forget even what year it was. And standing right next to him and like a step behind is Chuck Schumer, Democrat from uh, New York. And he's standing right behind Marco Rubio, as Rubio is talking, with the most maniacal look on his face. It's unbelievable. And and you know that Schumer's thinking, oh, I can't believe you fell for this. Right? It was the moment that Schumer just shivved Rubio right in the ribs. Because he was able to manipulate Rubio. And I think Rubio does really believe some of these things. But Schumer was able to manipulate him and really end his chance to become the Republican nominee. And Republicans will never forget what Rubio did there. They never will. But Trump is different. Now, first of all, it's not a policy switch. Trump isn't switching policy, switching optics. It's a tone change. But the other thing is we treat celebrities differently. We treat them different than regular people. We treat them different than politicians. There's so many examples of how we build up celebrities and then we tear them down. We build them up. And we tear him down. We build him up. We, tear him. we do it over and over. It's, we love it. It's a sport. It's a blood sport for us. We do it all the time. So many examples um, in sports since basketball's on right now. Kobe Bryant, right? Kobe Bryant's his last year. He entered the league. We lifted him up. He's a hero. Then he had that cheating scandal, right? We tear him down. We made him and his wife do this embarrassing press conference. They aired out all their dirty laundry. And then now that's the end of his career, we build him back up again. He's one of the greatest basketball players ever. LeBron James, same thing, right? Oh, great basketball player. And then he leaves Cleveland. Oh, you're the worst person in the world. Then we build him back up. That's his athletics. Tiger Woods, another great example. We haven't built him back up yet, but we will. There'll be an end of his career that will build him up and make him a great hero. Lance Armstrong, we build him up, tear him down. He'll be built back up again too, I, I guarantee it. Britney Spears, she's a perfect example. Build her up, tear her down. She goes crazy and then we build her back up again and we're all excited about her debut MTV Video Music Awards performance and then she performs and she's too fat we tear her back down again and now we build her back up. We do it all the time. Celebrities have a different, uh, their their relationship to us and and culture, it's different than, it's a different set of rules, it's a different game. I'll give you an example of this because we don't have to look very far back. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, big movie star, decides to run for governor, does a terrible job. So, but anyway, so he's a movie star. We love him. Runs for governor. We love him. Does a horrible job. Frees a murderer in exchange for political favors. Borrows a ton of money. Leaves California in worse shape be- than before. Has a big, giant cheating scandal, right? His approval ratings in the tank. So now we so we tear him down, and now he's going to be the new host of The Apprentice, right? He's taken over for Donald Trump. And people are going to love him again. And it's going to be a big love fest. Build him up, tear him down, build him up. Why? Because with celebrities, we have short memories. Celebrities are able to redefine themselves. And I think Trump is way more celebrity than anything else. So he's going to redefine himself as a prestigious elder statesman. Get ready for the most PC Trump you've ever seen. Rubio will never be able to redefine himself because he's not a celebrity. He's a politician. We have long memories with politicians, short memories with celebrities. And I think part of it is, as this woman told me a couple days ago, we think we know them. We think we know celebrities, so we excuse their behavior more? I don't know. I don't know why we have short memories, but I I think we do. I don't know. What do you think about that? One, uh, our slider radio on... uh, Slater Radio on Twitter, Slater Radio, S-L-A-T-E-R, radio on Twitter. I got a mini here real quick on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I distinctly remember when Schwarzenegger said he was going to run for governor. I was young, but and I wasn't really paying attention to politics, but I distinctly remember there being a conversation about needing to change the Constitution so that Schwarzenegger could run for president. He wasn't even the governor yet. He has. I don't, it wasn't even voting day yet. And people were already saying, oh my gosh, we need to change the Constitution so Arnold Schwarzenegger could, could one day be the president. What in the world? <laughs> so, so now we find out that he, when he announced on Leno's show that he was going to run for governor, he never even ran it by his wife, Maria Shriver. He said it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. He did it kind of as a joke. He thought he'd get a good laugh. He literally said, quote, this will freak everyone out. He was driving to the the show and he said, this will freak everyone out. It'll be funny. So he announced it as a joke. Two months later, he's governor. He had no idea what he was going to do. No idea what he stood for. No idea how to do anything. And it's just, I mean, you don't have to look that far back to see how people get swept up in celebrity. We treat them differently. We think about them differently. We relate to them differently. And Trump is going to deploy more of his celebrity status to nearly hypnotize people. Wait for it. I'm getting tweets right now. People are saying he'll never be able to redefine himself. Just wait. Wait. He will. And the average person, who are they going to vote for? The average person, not you, but the average person. Who are they going to vote for, a celebrity or a politician? He's going to increase his celebrity status moving forward. Wait for it. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
1: This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the
3: Blaze Radio Network.
1: Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater.
2: Uh, Yale cut it down to seven again. They can't. But then uh, then Duke's going up. Uh, Duke's up by nine again. Yale can't get up oh, for three. Oh, man, they can't break seven points. They were down by like twenty five. Oh, and then I just get turnover now. Brutal. So close. Um, I want to give a shout out here to the Chicago anti-Trump protesters. But I guess the same could be said for the Arizona protesters today it's the same thing um I I, I I wish i could talk to him i really do i wish i could chat to him and say hey you know what you're doing is helping trump right you know you're 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 increasing his support is this what you want to do or or no actually let me back it up there's another group of protesters called democracy spring what's the date today the 19th of march um there's this group called democracy spring And on April, I think, 2nd, they're going to start a 10-day march from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. And the group is run by MoveOn.org, which is George Soros, Black Lives Matter, the Democratic Socialists of America, so Socialists, and Unions. Okay, so these are the four groups that are coming together, and they're calling it the largest civil disobedience demonstration in the country. Which annoys the heck out of me, because sitting in the street and blocking traffic is not civil disobedience. That's just being annoying. That's just getting in people's way. That's not civil disobedience. I'll talk about that more in a second. I can't go off. Once I start ranting about that, I, I, I can't stop. So anyway, my point is, this group, this Democracy Spring, again, I think it's April 2nd, they can do whatever they want, but the more angry protests they have, the better it is for Trump. Now, you know that people have been saying that for a long time. The the more you attack Trump, the stronger he gets. Why? There's a thing in in, in psychology called reactance. Reactance. You know, the video we played in the last hour, you know, I said that Trump, that should be a Trump ad. Like Trump should play that ad or that, that clip of these establishment guys sitting around a dinner table, fancy dinner table, talking about how much they hate him. And how he doesn't fall in line, and how Republicans are very hierarchical, and we, we like, you know, <laughs> so, and Trump doesn't play by the rules. Like, Trump should play that over and over, right? These videos of establishment guys scared out of their minds and plotting moves against Trump, it drives people to Trump. Why? Reactance. So, reactance in psychology, it's how you act when you perceive a threat to your freedom. Reactance is how you act when you perceive a threat to your freedom. When you feel a threat to your freedom, you act to protect your freedom. Let me give you an example. When you're a kid and your mom says, son, do not eat that cookie before dinner. What do you want to do? (laughs) What do you want to do more than anything now? Eat that cookie. That's reactance. That's mom taking away a bit of kids' freedom. So when that happens, when you feel a threat to your freedom, you want to protect your freedom. And you want to eat that cookie more than ever. The classic example is when a mom says, son, you are to wear your dress shoes at church, not your sneakers. Well, the sneakers seem like a much better choice now. You had a she, mom took away a freedom choice from her son. Her son didn't, the son didn't like that and wants to protect his choices. And the best way to protect the choice is to do is to wear the sneakers, the thing that mom wants to take away. Right? Does that make sense? That's called reactance. It's the same thing with Donald Trump. Even if you don't like him, there's a lot of people, I'm not talking to you if you hate him, there's a lot of people who don't really like him or sort of on the fence about him. But everyone wants to have the freedom to vote for him. Even if you don't vote for him, you want to have the freedom to vote for him, which also means the freedom to not vote for him. But you want it to be an option. And when people in authority and influence say you can't or even you shouldn't, a lot of people say, can't tell me what to do. We don't want anyone to even threaten to take away our freedom. So a lot of people then support Trump, even if they didn't before. Right? We, we see this. And there's two reactions to this threat. First thing, you want what you're not allowed to have even more. Right? So people want to vote for Trump even more than they did because they're not supposed to. And the second thing is you start to tear down the thing that's threatening you. And that's why we're hearing all this stuff about the establishment and taking, taking down the establishment and all this stuff, because they're the ones threatening to take away this choice, even to people who don't want to vote for. them. Does that make sense? Let me give you another example. This may be confusing, but if you think closely, you, you know, this, these situations in your life, we love to have control over our choices. It's something about our culture. Right? We love to have choices. We like to have control over all the choices. So they did a study back in the 60s, and they had people listen to four songs, four records, and they judged which one they liked the most. Great. So they had, I don't know, 100 kids, and they, they had them each listen to one to four records, and then they judged which one they liked the most. And most people liked number two, right? record number two. Perfect. Okay? So that was the most liked record. So then they brought in 100 other people. And they said, hey, kids, we want you to listen to each of these records. And you know what? The one that you like the most, you get to take home. Awesome. So they did that for 100 people, 100 kids, and most of the kids liked record number two. That was the best. And they took record number two home. Beautiful. They brought in 100 more kids. And they said, hey, kids, great. This is fantastic uh, luck for you. We want you to listen to these four records. Tell us which one you like the most. And the one that you like the most, you get to take home. Except for record number four. We we can't let you leave with record number four. You can't take that one. It can be your favorite, but you can't take that one home. So, But, but if any of the other ones, you can take home if you want. Well, gosh, wouldn't you know it? The majority of people in that group liked record number four the most. Why? Because they were told they couldn't have it. They were told they couldn't take it home. Good salespeople use this tactic a lot. Maybe you've been there, you're buying a car, and the salesperson's showing you around and says, hey, here's a great car for you. And then you say, well, how about that car? Oh, no. (laughs) Sorry, you can't have that car. It's the only one in the county, and someone else has already bought it, so you, you can't have that one. But hey, look at this car over here. Whoa, 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 whoa. I want that one. Sir, I'm sorry you can't have that car. That car's already sold, and we don't have any other cars like it. It's the only one in the county. I I I can't sell you that car. Suddenly people want that car even more. And you say, no, I want that car. Okay, let me look. Uh, sir, wouldn't you know it? We got another one just like it right in the back. Oh, that's amazing. Right. It's good sales technique. You may have may have been victimized by it before. Trump and the establishment, that relationship, it's the same thing. It's called reactance. This is also the foundation of reverse psychology, right? So a parent will say, uh, whatever you do, don't wear your nice shoes to church. <laughs> so now you're, the kid's more likely to wear the nice shoes, right? So that's the reverse psychology. So, but reactance is the foundation of that. It's very powerful right now. And all these protesters better get that straight. The more you protest Trump, and, and not even protest, protesting is fine. The more you you are angry, the more you block traffic, the more you try to shut him down, the more people will run to him because of reactance. Because you're telling them not to, they'll want him even more. Keep that in mind, protesters. I got to take a break here. I never even got to complimenting. I actually want to compliment some of the protesters uh, in the Democracy Spring Movement, actually, coming forward. We'll do that next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: You're listening to Mike Slater <laughs> on The Blaze Radio Network.
1: On the Blaze Radio Network,
2: Slider. Because one of our uh, resident dissidents here on the show. Says, um, uh, you know, laughing aloud at you thinking civil disobedience is not okay. It is troubling that you condemn any protest. Protesting is as American as apple pie and guaranteed in the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Listen, listen to what I'm saying, Dave in L.A. Listen to me. I'm going to give you a second to open your ears. Okay. Protesting is fine. Blocking traffic is not. Carrying signs, chanting, whatever, fine. Blocking traffic, not okay. Now, you can even make an argument that it is appropriate. Here's what I'm going to say. If you want to block traffic, that is not civil disobedience. This is what I really want to focus on: the word civil disobedience. These protesters who are in um, on April second, they're going to march 140 miles in 10 days from Philadelphia to DC, and they call it, they're going to call it, they do call it the largest civil disobedience in the of the century. And they're going to go sit in in DC and and block traffic and stuff. That's not civil disobedience. Here's civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is when you protest a specific unjust law and you break that unjust law. Not when you break any law or when you break laws, you break a specific unjust law. So there used to be a law that said black people can't sit on the front of the bus. That is an unjust law. So Rosa Parks broke it. She broke that law. Notice Rosa Parks didn't light buildings on fire to protest not being allowed to sit on the front of the bus. She sat on the front of the bus to protest not being allowed to sit in the front of the bus. She broke the very specific law. That's civil disobedience. In India, with Gandhi, it was against the law for Indians to make salt. Right? Against the law for Indian people to make salt, so Gandhi, his salt march was a twenty four day march, two hundred and forty miles to the sea to go make salt. The salt march was it wasn't a twenty four march twenty four day march to burn buildings down or to block traffic. It was to go make salt, to break the one specific unjust law. So, if you want to march down to D.C. and not get in, other, in people's ways or whatever, that's fine. You can protest all you want. You have freedom to assemble. Blocking traffic and the like is not civil disobedience. Now, it may sound like semantics, but it's not. It's more important than that. Because... If we ever want to protest something as conservatives, we need to make sure that it's something specific. You can't just protest. I mean, you can, but it won't be effective. You can't just protest, Washington is broken. I mean, you can, but you know what I mean? Like, you're not, you can't fix that because it's not a targeted injustice with a specific goal you want to achieve. So these uh democracy uprising people they're protesting the billionaires in politics right even though they're funded by moveon.org which is George Soros who's a billionaire but right you can't you can't like you can't break that there's no law there there's no unjust law to break so it's not civil disobedience i'm not saying they can't protest it right i'm not saying they can't go to dc and in a park or legally with permits and all the rest Uh, Protest. Of course they can and should if they want. No problem with that. But you can't call it civil disobedience. It's not. Now they're going to break laws when they do this protest probably. But that's not right. That's what I'm saying. You with me Dave in LA? I'm not condemning any at all protests. Just ones that break random laws. All right, hold on. I got to look up here. Oh, eight seconds left. Pfft, darn it. Duke's up by six. One more free throw. Oh, Yale put up a good fight there. They're down by 27. 27 points. Isn't that amazing? So in the first half, when Yale was down by 27, you mean you, you, you know they let up their game at least for a couple minutes, and Duke probably got in a couple baskets that they, that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have, and Yale maybe missed a couple shots. And they I don't know, came back to haunt them here. Losing by five, six, seven points. Like That's crazy. Good job, team. Anywho, does that make sense about uh about protest? You can't just sit in the middle of the street protesting anything you want. That's that doesn't make any sense. It just annoys people. And if you don't have a specific goal, you're not going to be effective. And as I mentioned, I think in the top of the show, because uh Trump just did a rally in Arizona and people literally blocked the streets and the highways, preventing people from getting to the rally. I think the American people, we don't like disruptive protests. We don't have a problem with protests. We don't like disruptive protests. And because of reactance, which is a psychology uh, term we just uh, defined in the last segment, we have more sympathy for the person who's trying to be shut down than for the people who are shutting him down. And, you know, if Trump was smart, he would be secretly funding these protests because I think they benefit him a lot. Civil disobedience. Sitting in the street is not civil disobedience. That's the takeaway. Mike Slater Joe, Spread the word. You're listening
3: to Mike Slater.
1: Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
3: the Blaze Radio Network.
1: And go for Mike Slater in three, two one you're listening to mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio only on the blaze radio network
2: slater for america's greatest country in the world thanks for being here duke uh, just beat yale duke was up by 27 points at one point and yale brought it back to uh, i think they closed it to six and they missed a three-pointer so i mean that would have been three lost by like six or seven points uh no no one cares (laughs) please don't think i'm under the illusion that you care uh, about that uh, but I should say one last thing about Yale. Uh, the, 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 the Yale Yale squash won the national championship this year. The squash team <clears throat> beat Rochester a couple weeks back. National champions in squash. So yeah, we didn't win the basketball game, but um, still national champions in, in squash. Now, did you hear what happened to the Yale basketball captain? Just a couple days ago. I think it was the day they learned that they were making the tournament. The, or right around there. The captain of the basketball team got expelled from school. Like from the school. Not kicked off the team. Expelled from the school. Second semester of his senior year. He was three months away from graduating. And it was right before, a couple days before the tournament started. What happened? So I heard this. And I assumed some sort of sexual misconduct. That was my first thought. I didn't know, but that was just my first thought. And then the Yale basketball team wore shirts that had his name on the back, Gucci, his nickname. And there was this outrage on campus from the Yale Women's Center and all these other groups about how men could support a rapist. So sure enough, that's that's the story. Well, now we know more, and this ties into the election. I'll get to that in a second. Now, I want to share what happened to get this kid expelled from school, but I just want to say that these are the facts that are not under dispute. This is from the female student's account of what happened. Are you with me? This is not his account. This is her account of what happened. And you tell me if this is rape and worthy of being expelled from school. They became boyfriend and girlfriend in 2014, two years ago. The woman, and this is her, this is what she said happened. The woman joined the guy, Jack, in his bed, stayed the night. Another night, I don't know how much time elapsed in between, but another night, she went to his room, she took off her clothes, spent the night, woke him up in the middle of the night to have sex. Third night, she went to his room, took off her clothes, had sex. The fourth occasion, she joined him in his bed. She took her clothes off, they had sex. They went their separate ways. Later that same night, she texted him asking to go back to his room. She did. And she spent the night in his bed. Two years later, she claims that that, f- that third time, that, that fourth night, the third time they had sex, she now claims that she did not consent. That's it. Expelled from school. <clears throat> now you think, hold on. They're boyfriend girlfriend. And if they, if she didn't consent, why would she go? Why would she ask to go back to that room later the night, two years ago? Amazing. So the team wore shirts for their captain. When he got kicked off, and people posted these posters all around campus that said, "I stand with the Yale women. End rape culture. Don't support rapists." There's another sign. Posters all over campus said, "Yale men's basketball team, stop supporting rapists." Listen, rape is the most despicable act there is. I mean, it's it's right up there, top three. I would never condone it or anything that looks like it. But in the name of protecting women, which is of the utmost biblical importance, in the name of honoring, respecting, and protecting women, we've gone to this other extreme, which is not a good place to be either. NPR. This is not me. This is NPR. did a whole story just the other day on how colleges are overreacting, and schools have these tribunals now where the guy isn't even allowed to present his case. He's not allowed to respond to the accusations. So in this Yale case, there are no Yale police complaints or investigations and there's no new Haven police complaints or investigations. These rape accusations need to be handled by the police and the courts for the safety of the woman and for the man. They need to be done properly, not in a kangaroo court. And dare I say, for the safety of other women, here's why this is why this whole overreaction to the other side or overcorrection, I'll put it This overcorrection hurts other women. Let's say this, this Yale basketball player did rape this girl. So you expel him from campus. Well, now he has the opportunity to go to a different school And now that other school is going to have a rapist on their campus. Rapists should be in jail. A rapist should be hung from a tree. But I'm just going to go, rapists should be in jail. Expelling them from colleges doesn't protect women. It endangers other women. Get the police involved. Throw them in jail. But the police aren't involved because there's no case here. What does this have to do with the election? This is the same as the campus anti free speech movement, the freedom from speech movement. It's all under the umbrella of the chaos in our universities. In this case, you're guilty until proven innocent. An accusation is all that's needed against you. You don't even get to present your case. It is lawless, it is unfair. And just like the freedom from speech movement started on our university campuses and now is moving into the real world with the stop Trump or shut down Trump. Excuse me, not stop. That's one thing. Shut down Trump movement. This is just the beginning of the universities. All of this seeping into the real world. It's just the beginning. Quick note on on the shut it down or shut down Trump. If it wasn't Donald Trump, it'd be Ted Cruz. Right? It'd be someone, it'd be whoever's next in line. If, if Donald Trump quit the race today, the same people would be protesting the person who's in, who would now be in first place. It's, it's, <laughs> it's nothing to do with Trump. It doesn't. I got a minute here. I'll tell you another story. The, a dean at the Berkeley Law School, tenured professor, they're trying to fire him because he violated the sexual harassment policy of the school. This is a letter... From a law professor at UC Berkeley. Quote, keep in mind, we do not know what actually happened. The Title IX proceeding, real quick timeout, Title IX. So when I, think, when I say Title IX, what do you think of? That's what everyone thinks of. That's not what Title IX is. It is. It's not women's sports. Women's sports is a part of Title IX, but Title IX is this huge umbrella. Women's sports is just the first part of Title IX that was implemented. But it's this whole other thing. It's this huge beast of a, of a, of a policy, I guess. I don't even know if it's a law. I guess. That, so Title IX is much bigger than just women's sports. Anyway, the Title IX proceeding gives the respondent no procedural rights. He's not allowed to examine the witness or to hear their testimony. The process and findings are confidential because the process is intended to err on the side of the complainant. So you ask, did the dean of, of Berkeley Law School violate the sexual harassment policy? I don't know, and no one will ever know, and he may never know because the kangaroo court doesn't even have to tell him what he's being accused of. This is not justice. This is not justice. And please don't, I, I, please don't think I'm not taking sexual harassment or rape seriously enough. I'm taking it more seriously. Because I think if this happens, then it should go to the courts and the police. I take it more seriously than you do. Or than these people do. And to have it happen, it's one thing at Yale, but to have it happen at Berkeley Law School, students apparently have not yet learned why we have the legal system we do. This kangaroo court helps no one. Very dangerous. And it's going to go into the the, the real world soon. one 888 900 3393 Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network spread the word
3: You're listening to
1: Mike Slater
3: on the Blaze Radio Network
2: Slater, Slater Crusaders, you may remember Mike in Alaska last week. Mike is the uh, the gentleman who w- listens while working in his Native American flute shop. Is that right? He, he whittles. I don't know if whittles is the right word. I hope that's not a demeaning word. Carves Native American flutes in Alaska. It's pretty cool. So Mike called in last week and he brought up this moment in the movie Gladiator I said ooh that's interesting I'm going to look it up so I found it so the movie's Gladiator if you haven't seen it what, what's the deal like what are you what are you doing go see it go now stop listening now go watch it go watch the movie right now so Joaquin Phoenix's character Commodus he's losing control and he decided to have 150 days of games so someone questions him Right? He says, you know, you shouldn't do that. And uh, Commodus, the emperor, he says, not just any games, Senator, a series of games that will make the gods envious and leave my children happy. I will subsidize the arena from this day forth. And I will culminate this celebration in a great spectacle the likes of which the world has never seen. A great spectacle to honor my father magnificent, unending weeks of festivity, all in the names of Marcus Aurelius. And the politician next to him says, "Uh, if I may, Caesar, how are you going to pay for this? And Commodus snipes back. He says, that is not your concern. My father deserves to be honored and I will honor him and the people will love me. And the Senate will obey me. And every one of you will burn, burn, burn. I will have order. And he storms out. Okay, So he's he's losing the people. We're going to have 150 days of games. So then the scene changes. And this is that that advisor, the the politician, who um, questioned him. He's talking to another politician in the market, and I want to play that scene right here. Um, there's one word in here that that we don't use: Praetorians. He uses the word Praetorian. That's like his his guards, the the emperor's military, basically. Those are the Praetorians. All right, here you go. Games.
4: 150 days of games. He's cleverer than I thought. Clever. The whole of Rome would be laughing
3: at him. They weren't so afraid of his Praetorian.
4: Fear and wonder, a powerful combination.
3: You really think that people are going to be seduced
4: by that? I think he knows what Rome is. Rome is the mob. he conjure magic for them and they'll be distracted. We take away their freedom and still their war. The beating heart of Rome is not the marble of the Senate. It's the sand of the Colosseum. You bring them death, and
5: they
1: will love him for it.
2: <laughs> the beating heart of Rome is not the marble of the Senate. It's the sand of the Colosseum. Fear and wonder, a powerful combination. I play this, and Mike uh, did, did a brilliant job thinking of this. Trump is not the first person to tap into certain emotions. And because human nature has never changed and never will, Trump will not be the last. You know, the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk about Trump's violent rhetoric and the protesters and all the rest. There's a very specific reason why Trump, when there's a protester, he does the whole, you know, get him out of here, like that whole thing. There's a lot I could say about this. We only have a couple minutes. First of all, I do think it's an important distinction that uh, these, like you know, these events, like get them out of here, Th- those are inside Trump events. You know, I keep hearing the media talk about Trump inflaming rhetoric and instigating violence and all this, and I've yet to see angry roaming Trump supporters, you know, rioting and punching Hillary Clinton supporters in the face. Like, I, like I don't. That doesn't. I, I don't see. I don't see anyone lighting cars on fire with Bernie Sanders bumper stickers. there's no, it's, it's not outside of the, it's, it's a, anyway. So it's people coming into the Trump event causing trouble, but anyway, it's, I'm just, now I wouldn't act like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So I see no need to ever punch a protester. No need to ever sink down to that level. But I do think it's an important distinction to note that he's not telling people to go outside and, and, you know, punch people in the face, whatever. I don't want to, I don't, I'm not going to die on that hill, but I'm just throwing that out there. Here's the main point, and this is how Scott Adams articulated it. You got to th- think about how Trump thinks. He's a businessman. He's a performer. He's a marketer. Okay, those are his skill sets. He's been doing it for 40 years. He doesn't even have to think twice about it. And I think that's why last week we talked about um, Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, if you ask him to play Stairway to Heaven, he doesn't say, oh, uh... How's it how's it go again? How do you, What's the first chord of of Stairway like he knows it like, like he's played it a million times. Okay, Jimmy Page doesn't have to think he can play Stairway to Heaven in his sleep. It's the same thing with Trump. He doesn't think about stuff like this. It's just it's like who he is. He's been doing it for 40 years. He just he just does it. It's like um doing another example like Michael Jordan shooting a basketball. He's not like, which foot do I jump off of? Like he just, it's it's who they are. Same thing with Trump. Four years he's been doing this. He just thinks this way. He thinks as a performer and a businessman. What he did with these rallies and these protesters who systematically would interrupt orchestrated protest. He monetized them. He monetized protesters by making them a part of the entertainment. These rallies are just shows at their show. It's the Trump show. I saw one the other a couple weekends ago. And the first four rows were full of like 25 to 30 year old guys screaming at Trump like they were at a NASCAR race. I mean, these are, it's unbelievable. I've never seen it like these are shows. And the Trump show kept getting disrupted. Again, orchestrated disruptions once every five minutes a protesters would get up and, and, and disrail it. So he, a performer made the disruptions part of the show. He monetized it. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm just explaining what he's doing. Where politics in the past, you know, a protester would get up and the politician would say, oh, you know, what's your concern? How do you feel? Or uh, I've been to many speeches that people have given in college and protesters come in and they shut it down. Right? We see it on college campuses often. Lately. They just shut it down. They come in, yell, scream, and they shut the whole thing down. Bernie Sanders. They've done it to Bernie Sanders a couple of times. That's one other thing. All the people are like, oh, the violent rhetoric that Trump is instigating. It's causing all these protests. The protesters shut down Hillary or, uh, Bernie Sanders rallies. <laughs> they shut down uh, Hillary Clinton rallies. It's not a Trump thing. It's the protesters thing. Anyway. In the past, politicians, oh, how do you feel? Or the, or the event will get shut down. But Trump's not going to do that. He made them part of the event. He didn't let them disrupt the event. He made them part of the event. So anyway, I know someone's saying Slater, we're better than this. You know, we can't possibly elect someone who, you know, runs a WWE event. (laughs) Okay. That's fine. I'm not saying you should vote for that, but Trump's figured out how to control the media and how to turn the protests to his advantage. And every protester, as we've been talking about, instead of disrupting the rally, improves the rally now. (laughs) The protesters enhanced the rally. Nothing new. Because Trump knows just what that senator in Rome knew. That the heart of Rome is not in the marble of the Senate. It's in the sand of uh, of the arena. Fear and wonder, a powerful combination. Slater Radio on Twitter one 888 900 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
1: Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. 900-3393. 900 Mike Slater is on.
2: Slater Crusaders. Thank you for being here. Um enough politics for a second. Can we talk uh, basketball? Well, not really basketball. But a basketball-ish story. Um, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech in the tournament? I don't think they are. Yeah, I don't think they are. Um, Buzz Williams is the coach and he's been there for like two years. So like all good coaches, they realize that the game is not the important thing. The game is not the end. It is the means to the end. The game is there to mold great men. The game means nothing. It's, it's, it's a means to get you to become a better person. It's a simulation of life. Right? The game is not life. It is a simulation of things that really matter in life. It teaches you how to be a better husband, a better father, better brother, better friend, better teammate. It teaches you how to overcome defeat, how to be humble in victory, how to overcome obstacles, how to grind through things that you don't want to do teaches you to realize that the only way to improve in life is through small improvements. John Wooden, who I think is one of the greatest coaches of all time, he says, when you improve a little each day, eventually big things occur. Not today, or excuse me, not tomorrow, not the next day, but eventually a big gain is made. Don't look for the big, quick improvement. Seek the small improvement one day at a time. That's the only way it happens. And when it happens, it lasts. I love that line. That's the only way it happens. <laughs> that's not, it, there was no other disclaimer. It's the only way it happens. You want to see improvement? The only way is small improvement one day at a time. No other way. Slater, but what about this? Nope. No other way. It's, that's so contrary to our modern culture which is all about get-rich-quick schemes and lose weight fast pills and buy this vibrating belt thing that shakes your fat and makes you skinny. while well, all you have to do is sit on the couch and eat bonbons. Like, like that's that, that will never work. There's no, there's no shortcuts. And that's what John Wooden was talking about. Small incremental changes. Anyway, th- these are the things that you learn through sports. Sports are not the purpose itself. They're to teach you these other life lessons. Anyway, Buzz Williams, he gets that. He was noticing in the beginning of the year During the National Anthem, his players were horsing around. Right, The National Anthem before the game, players were uh, swaying back and forth and poking each other and messing with their shorts and looking down and all around and all this stuff. And he saw that he said, this ain't ain't right. What I'm seeing from my kids, I see a lack of discipline and I see a lack of respect. We're not going to allow that. They may be good at basketball, but that's not what's important. We're going to teach him discipline and respect. So this is what he did. He had the entire team line up in the main arena, right on the court, completely empty. Had them all line up. Then he had the color guard bring in the players' chairs and line those up. He then had veterans walk in the arena, single file, active duty service members and veterans from World War II. Korea, Vietnam, had all these men walk in and they lined up behind each chair. You with me? So you got the chairs that lined up. You got a veteran standing behind each chair. And then you got the players looking at these men. And that's when coach gave this life lesson to his players. Now, the audio here is terrible, uh, but it gets a little better after the first few seconds. Here it is.
5: So kind of along the lines of what I've been talking to you guys about, where we always think it's us, because we're always in our world. I'm not saying y'all, I'm saying me. we didn't earn those chairs. Your talent didn't earn those chairs. How tall you are and how fast you run, and how well you shoot, didn't earn those chairs me draw up a play, me recruit real hard, me work real hard. I didn't earn the chair. These guys, when they were your age, interrupted their life. They paused their education. They changed their career. And they gave their life for those chairs. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Not us. Not us. And so when the anthem is played, we're going to stand like grown men, and we're going to honor men like this that gave their life so we could have a chair to sit in. And then, the two and a half minutes that the song is played and somebody sings it or the music is played, we're gonna stand at attention in honor of these men. And we're not gonna sway back and forth. We're not messing with our short. We're not messing with our jersey. Those two and a half minutes, we're gonna to give to the people that earned these chairs because that freedom allows us to do what we're doing. So it's way more important to me how we handle this than what we do when they call your name and jump up and down and whatever handshake you have because that handshake makes you think it's about you but before it became about you it was about these guys does everybody understand I don't care if you sing, but I want you to know the words and I want you to be respectful of the words Because those words represent people's lives. And we're not looking down and we're not swaying. We're standing still with perfect body language. And all that we're thinking about is these men who earned the right for these chairs to be here. Not how many jumpers you shot on your own. Not whatever we did as coaches. What they did. Long time ago, before we were born.
2: Then they all lined up. One veteran, one player, one veteran, one player, one veteran, one player. They all lined up on a straight line and then practiced how to behave during the national anthem. Love it. Uh, We forget sometimes that these college players are just kids and they still need to be taught. And that's a good coach. My favorite Coach Wooden lesson, because I mentioned him earlier, he would tell his players that after a game, if someone doesn't know the score and they're looking at you, they shouldn't be able to tell if you won or lost. Right? Does that make sense? So they see you after the game. They shouldn't know who won the game based on your actions. Because he says you can outscore your opponent and still lose. And you can be outscored and still win. It's how you play that matters. Something in the Yale Duke game that was just a second ago. Like Yale played tremendously. They lost the game. They were outscored. But they did amazing. So when people see the Yale players today, they shouldn't be able to tell if they won or lost. Like that's how we should act appropriately. Because they they played great. Now I'm not, I'm not please don't, I please don't care. I'm not like some hippie like, oh, don't keep score. It's all good. It's all fun. But this is what's really important. Stuff like what Buzz Williams is talking about. And we got to keep in mind who really earned those chairs. 188 93 Mike Slater so the Blaze Radio Network spread the word.
1: Mike Slater
3: on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: This is Mike
2: Slater. Slater, how do you do? Thanks for being here today. We had some fun. Uh, kicked off the shoe, talking about the election of 1824. Uh, we figured there's not enough to talk about in this election, so we got to go back 180 years. Now, the reason we did that is because they're the exact same. I would say the rhetoric back then was much worse. Andrew Jackson called the sitting president, John Quincy Adams, a pimp. He said he sent American virgins to Russia in exchange for political favors. And the sitting president said that Jackson was a murderer and a cannibal. The claim was that Andrew Jackson, when he was a general, he killed a thousand Indians, slept amongst their corpses, and then ordered his men to eat them for breakfast. And they would send these flyers around with um, coffins on them. Six coffins. One for uh, each of the men that Jackson executed. And then at the bottom of the flyer, it had a picture of Jackson stabbing a man in the street of Nashville. (laughs) So I I just share that just because I feel like uh, you know rhetoric. I don't know. Isn't that bad? (laughs) Or at least it's always been this bad. I'll leave it at that. Here's another uh, parallel. Andrew Jackson. Backwoods Hick from Tennessee. Rough tumble general. Kill people. Kill people in duels executed people, killed the Indians, war hero from uh, the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. He was running against John Quincy Adams, who lived probably the most privileged life imaginable, at least at that time. I mean, by our standards, it would be horrible, but um, at that time, he was the elite. He, uh, he was the son of a president. He lived in Paris, Amsterdam, and St. Petersburg as a kid, went to school in France, and then he came back to America and went to Harvard, he was a lawyer in Boston. George Washington appointed him ambassador to the Netherlands. He ran for Congress and then Senate. Then he became a minister to Russia. He led the delegation that wrote the peace treaty to end the war of 1812. Okay? So he, was, he did everything. And it was obvious he was going to run for president. He held every other office you could possibly hold. And he runs against and loses to a backwoods hick from Tennessee. Why? Because the mood of the country then is pretty much the same as it is now. So what do you mean? The president's. Back then, the first presidents, George Washington from Virginia, John Adams from Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, James Madison from Virginia, John Monroe from Virginia, and then John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts. So you had this Virginia aristocracy with a couple of these Massachusetts guys thrown in. They were sick of the elite. The people were sick of the elite. And all of those past achievements of John Quincy Adams worked against him. He was the Washington elite. So the American people had a very clear choice. Very, I should say a very distinct choice. They could either vote for the guy who negotiated the peace treaty to end the War of 1812. right? The War of 1812 between the British and the Americans and the peace treaty was signed in Russia. So you could either vote for the guy who led the negotiation to the peace treaty, or you could vote for the general who killed Indians and the British in the War of 1812. Think about that difference there, right? You with me? Like You can you, you either have the, the politician, the, the statesman, the dignitary, the ambassador, who's going to negotiate at the end of the peace treaty, or you can have the war general who killed a lot of people in the War of 1812. That difference there is as clear as day. You can either have the guy who negotiated the treaty, or you can have the guy who two weeks after the peace treaty was signed, but he didn't know it because the word hadn't made it back to America yet, he found out where the British set up their camp and said, By the eternal, they shall not sleep on our soil. And in an incredible military victory, defeated a British army three times the size of the Americans. Who do you think the people were going to vote for? The general. First person not from the Northeast to win the presidency. It's the same thing today. The mood of the people, they want lawyers. Do you want more lawyers or they want Trump? Now, I'm not pushing one of the other. I'm not saying... You shouldn't do Trump or you shouldn't go lawyers. I'm just commenting on what seems to be the mood of the country. Now, I would say that wasn't there in 1824, but I would say uh, we should probably vote for the guy who has incredible world experience, right? I don't know. I'd probably go for John Quincy Adams, but we don't make the most rational decisions ever as human beings. What makes you think we're going to make a rational decision this time around? And as we said earlier, the election of 1824, Jackson won uh, uh, the most um, votes in the Electoral College. Jackson had the most. John Quincy Adams had the second most. But because Jackson didn't get a majority, the Constitution says it goes to the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives, the head of it was Henry Clay. Henry Clay got fourth in the election, presidential election, but he was the Speaker of the House. He decided to give the presidency to John Quincy Adams, who was in second place, in exchange for John Quincy Adams naming Henry Clay Secretary of State. They called it the um, uh, corrupt bargain. The establishment guys, quote unquote, figured out a way to keep the presidency from the backwoods hick from outside outsider from Tennessee. And because of that, Andrew Jackson got a ton more support people rallied all around him it was the beginning of the democratic party and he won 4 years later and won another reelection 4 years after that history repeats itself there's nothing new under the sun i hope that the the establishment guys Look at this election. Look at how people responded. Look at how people reacted and try to figure out something. If they're going to try and take this from Trump somehow, they have to figure out a way to do it so that the American people don't revolt, whether it's the Trump supporters who most certainly will, but also a lot of other people who don't like the idea of the establishment telling them what they can or cannot do, even if they don't like Trump. You're going to get a lot of people who run to him because of the establishment. They got to figure out what to do, because if you're a John Quincy Adams guy, Sure, he won that election, but he was deemed illegitimate for the next four years and lost his re-election. So it was a short-term win for the establishment. History always repeats itself. Hopefully the elite is smart enough this time. Slater Crusaders, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word.
1: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.